This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. I said that we were going to talk about the LRT just for a minute. And the reason I wanted to bring this up, and I want I asked Councillor Judy Partridge to come on the show today, uh, was not able to get a response back, which I was disappointed about because I really wanted to have her on because something, she posted a, a story, she wrote a piece in the Flamborough Review that's posted online right now. You can find it at thespec.com. And she's talking about the LRT, and the headline is Flamborough Councillor Judy Partridge, quote, no longer supports LRT project. And here is why she says that she is no longer supporting. Now, just before I get to that, I can't recall, i got to be honest, the LRT debate, as we've said many times, is kind of like the stadium debate now. It's gone back and forth and up and down and in and out. I've kind of lost track of who started in which position and where they've been I know that Councillor Donna Skelly, Councillor Terry Whitehead, Councillor Chad Collins have been pretty consistently questioning slash against, or at least doubtful. And I know the Councillors Marula, Farr, Green, Johnson, some others have been for it. There there are some others, though, that fall into, I'm, I'm not trying to be difficult. I'm not trying to forget. I've just completely lost track of who is where. So I can't remember if Councillor Partridge has been for this all along, if it's been moving a little bit, I'm not really sure. But she says now in this piece that she is no longer supporting the LRT project. And here's why, and i got to be honest with you, I feel like her concerns in many ways echo the concerns that a lot of the people have about this. I don't think that what she's saying, and I want to hear, I'll I'll hear from you, I'll, I'll be willing to listen to you. I think some of the things that she's saying here are the things that if an answer had been offered before this point, there are a number of people in the city who are anti-LRT or down on the LRT who would maybe not be. But the reason that she cites as being no longer supporting of the LRT, and you know what I'm going to do? I'm not even going to preface it. I'm going to read exactly what she says so it's in her words. The situation Hamilton faces today, she was talking about what we were going to originally do with LRT. Uh, While the capital cost to build the LRT is being picked up by the province, the looming question hanging over all of this is, how much is the LRT going to cost us and who is going to pay for it? This is a question that I and many of my colleagues have been pressing our staff and Metrolinx for years to get answered. It was recently announced that the Eglinton Crosstown LRT in Toronto will have an annual and unexpected operating cost of $80 million when it finally opens. That cost works out to over $4.2 million per kilometer. And I'm adding here, notice that's per year. That's an annual cost. Back to, back to Judy. If the cost for Hamilton is even half what the Toronto costs are, that could be over $23 million a year. That would represent half of our total citywide operating budget For the HSR, Hamilton cannot afford to move forward blindly with such a large unknown looming in the distance. Hamilton's current infrastructure deficit is over $195 million a year with a cumulative infrastructure debt of over $3 billion. We have real needs in our community that we ignore every year for lack of funding. With this level of uncertainty around the LRT and who will pay for it once it's up and running, I find myself in a position where I can no longer support this project. What I find interesting, so interesting about this, is that, as I said, this is, I think, one of those points that so many people have been asking, myself included, 
What is it going to cost once it's built? Leave aside for a minute the idea that this is eight, this is a billion dollars. And even if we come to the assumption, even if we believe wholeheartedly that the province will cover the cost of this fully. And by the way, it is now 718. So Lisa will take line one and line two, and then everyone else, if you, you can still get it right. You can still get the quiz question right tonight, but it's only one ballot. But anyway, back to this. Even if we assume, even if we believe that the province is going to give us a, the full billion dollars and that will be covered, that the capital cost, the building, all those kind of things will be done. There are questions, and she's illuminated these, she's pointed these out. There are questions about what is the cost going to be to operate this. And I've I've always struggled to understand why this is so hard to get an answer to. Surely we know what the cost is going to be to the city. Surely we can say our annual fees, the dues that Hamilton is going to have to pay will be even within a good ballpark this much. I've not understood why that is difficult to come up with as far as an answer. That would seem to me to be an essential, basic part of the equation when discussing this. And I honestly, I got to believe that even those who are the staunchest or among the staunchest LRT supporters, and I have said on this show so many times, I would rather you be passionately in disagreement with something I say or something someone else says, and we have this discussion than for you to be disinterested or apathetic. So whether you agree with her, whether you disagree with her, your choice. That's that's entirely up to you. I've, I applaud if you have a strong feeling on this. If you have a strong opinion, no matter what it is, I applaud you, and I I think it's great that you are taking an interest in your city politics and city issues. But I think even the people who are the most strenuously in favor of the LRT would acknowledge that there is a missing piece if we don't know what this is going to cost to operate. And you can say, well, you know, we're going to have more people riding it, so uh, it's this and it's going to save on gas and it's good for the environment and all this stuff. Uh, that stuff may all be true. But why Why could we not, as part of this process, have someone, i.e. Metrolinks, and I, maybe if they have, I've missed it. Please, if they have, someone call me right now and tell me, where it is that I can find it, because I've missed it. But if we can tell, if someone is out there who can tell me how much this is going to cost so we can bank on this, because this, this is a huge missing piece. If I, if I am building a brand new house, do I not buy, let me back up. If I'm buying a house, because building it, you're still going to do it, but the better example is if I were to buy a house, if I was to go onto realtor.ca, if I was to go hire a real estate agent and I was to buy a house, what is one of the things that is always included in the information that comes with the cost of that house? You have the cost. So let's say it's a $500,000 house in the city. That's, you know, that the house costs you $500,000. That's fine. But the other piece of information that always accompanies the house purchase and the purchase price is what are your annual taxes? And the reason for that is pretty simple. You want to know, A, can I afford the house? And B, can I afford the house if on top of my mortgage payments, I also have taxes, hydro, heat, furnishings, upkeep, 
food, internet, cable, all those kind of things. That is an essential part of understanding whether you can afford a house. And so while we may, while there may be great benefits and, and look, I've heard so many arguments, pro and con, bright, inspired, good arguments on both sides of the fence here. And while, even if you take the side or if you take the side that says that this is the best thing that could ever happen to this city, that this will, this billion dollars will be transformative and will help build the city and that billion dollars will be covered. I still think that it's missing a huge part of the equation if we don't know what this is going to actually cost the citizens. And I can't, I'm on this one point. I am with, I am with Councillor Judy Partridge. Why, why, why can we not find out what it's going to cost before we have to go deep, deep, deep into this thing? And then, because here's the problem, is that once we get this thing going, once the construction is rolling along, once the ground is dug up, once the piping is done or the, the, the you know, all the stuff that we're talking about, once all that stuff has begun to happen, it is too late to turn back. And we are locked in for good or for bad, but we are locked in at that point. And you know what? What happens? What happens if Councillor Partridge is correct with what she brings up here? And our costs would work out to $23 million a year to run that stretch of LRT, which is half, as she says, half of the entire operating budget for the HSR. Meaning, meaning, that you are left with two choices. Either the entire rest of the city has to have vastly diminished HSR service. So the whole public transit strategy goes right out the window because the only part of the city then that's well served would be the LRT area. Or, or our taxes and our costs and the city's cost that we're going to bear as citizens is going to go right through the roof to try to pay for this. We can't afford this stuff. We have to know what the cost is going to be on this. And on that point, I absolutely agree with her. I absolutely agree with her. Frank writes in, and Frank's got a really interesting point here on this one. He goes, if we wait long enough, now I know a lot of people are blanching at the waiting long enough. He goes, we'll get some real facts from watching Kitchener-Waterloo. You know, that's not a bad point. It's not a bad point because Waterloo... is about to open their, well, they've already got some of the cars ordered. They're, they're about to launch into this thing. We are going to, they're, we're going to see whether or not what the costs are going to be. And we're going to, and it, well, I don't know if it's going to be too late because if we've got shovels in the ground, if we're digging up our roads and suddenly we find out, oh, guess what? The cost to do this in Waterloo is now vastly higher than we expected. You know what's going to happen? We're going to be sitting there going, what, how, how did we not know this? On the flip side, let's look at the positive. On the flip side, if Metrolinx or whomever wants to come up with this can come back and say, hey, look, here's what it's going to cost you to do this, and it's going to be cost effective, and it's going to save you money, or it's only going to cost you a tiny bit more, and you'll have vastly better service in that area. Would that not make many people in this city who are doubters right now, would that not make a lot of people more comfortable, do you not think, with this concept? I would think it would. Now, by the way, I want to say this. 
Councillor Partridge just got back to me by email as I'm talking here. Uh, she's in a board meeting until later tonight. She goes I, that so she she regrets not being able to come on come on the show, but she's stuck in a board meeting. Uh, that's that's good. I appreciate that. We will have her on at some point to talk about this because this is one of those things. As I say, I think she has hit on a really and she's not the first, but she has gone public and hit on a really important point here. The billion dollars is a huge part of this, is the biggest part of this. But there's other money. And surely, before we have a final decision on this, surely we are entitled to know what it is. And if the number comes back as a very positive thing, I really believe it will push things in the right direction. We will have a lot more people supporting the LRT. It's the lack of knowing. Nobody buys a car without knowing how big the gas tank is. Nobody buys a house without knowing what the taxes are. Nobody buys a business without knowing what the overhead costs are going to be. You don't do that. Surely we could be allowed to know or we should be knowing before we get into this what the operating costs are so we can rest easy, we can put our minds at ease, or we can raise some genuine concerns and have the people who are very much in favor answer how this will be resolved. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. The fan favorite of every Blue Jay fan, Rouge Ned Odor, you know, the second baseman for Texas, the guy who punched Jose Bautista in the face, the, yeah, him, um, he signed a new contract today. Six-year deal with the Cleveland Indians, $49.5 million, so you will have six more years to boo him while he plays for the Rangers, but... Part of his contract, one of the things that pushed it over the top, in addition to the $49.5 million, because clearly that wasn't enough. I mean, who could be, who could just get by on $49.5 million for six years? I, I know I'd struggle. Those of us who work here at CHML, I mean, it's way more than that that we get. But anyway, um, he also got two horses thrown into the deal. That's how they put it over the top. In addition to the $49.5 million, they clinched it by saying, hey, you know what, Rouge Ned? We'll also give you two horses. Bubba O'Neill from CHCH joins me. Bubba, uh, would that have cinched it for you? If you were holding out from CHCH and they said, we need you to come on board, we'll offer you two horses, would that have done it? I'm in no position to hold out from CHCH. <laughs> <laughs> but would it have been horses that you would have held out for? Uh, maybe a good old Tim Hotter Horton's coffee might have been okay. <laughs> Just give me a give me a gift card. Uh, you know, um, could be a a, fl- a flashy new convertible. That would work. Yeah. that would work. You know what? I, you know what I did picture though when I heard that he was holding out for horses. <laughs> I got to tell you, I and I. It's not surprising why this the scene from Blazing Saddles where the guy punches the horse in the face came right to mind with Rougenet Odour. You're really aging yourself, my friend. Well, I know, but I mean, <laughs> you've got horses and you've got a face puncher. What? How could you not combine those two into uh, into one image? Oh, no, I, that's a good one, though. Um, I got a bunch of things I want to go through with you quickly that have been on the on the front of mind the last few days. And first of all, uh, tomorrow night uh, in Plymouth, Michigan. The Women's World Hockey Championship will be starting. It is, of course, the U.S. now has a team that will be playing because they settled their dispute about money and and on and on. We also have Women's March Madness going in the States this weekend, along with Men's March Madness. Um, And you, you look at these and you go, okay, in the women's hockey, we have two countries that can compete. The rest are far, far, far behind them. 
In women's college basketball, we have UConn that Kia Nurse plays for, and everyone else is far, far, far behind. In women's soccer, there are a few more teams, but then everyone else is pretty far behind. Why do we find in women's sports, why is it so difficult, and I'm not arguing about whether dynasties are good or bad, why is it so difficult in women's sports to build parity? Oh, you know, it, it's funny, and I ask myself that question, too, because, I mean, after watching, I've obviously, you know, been showing the results of the NCAA tournament and, uh, and, and Kia Nurse's team that, you know, have won 111 straight games um, dating back to 2014, and, and it makes me wonder, I mean, because I, I've watched some games that didn't include those two teams, uh, they didn't include UConn, and there was good quality basketball. And obviously, and when you say good quality, you mean like even? It was it was a good competitive sure, game. Sure, competitive game. Good, you know, entertainment. Uh, good passing. You know, a, a couple of dunks mixed in. Like it, it was a good, comp- you know, competitive basketball. And you know, I, I, I love. I think you know, obviously, Gino Ariama is one of the better coaches, if not one of the, the the best coaches in college basketball, men or women of all time. But I mean, they're able to recruit the best players and. Uh, there's something about his coaching that seems to have gotten into the heads of these these women, and and they they're superstars. And you know, but I, to, to get closer to your question, it, it's really hard for me to understand how that happens, um, Scott, because I can see it in terms of hockey because there's just not enough teams, not enough countries playing the sport. Okay, that's just my opinion. I mean, because uh, the United States and Canada have the most money and are willing to put the most money into uh, developing hockey. And, you know, we, we, right down to the level of, of young children. But basketball is a sport to me that it, it, it befuddles me. You're looking at maybe 150 teams in Division One and Division Two that play women's basketball. And how one team is so much better than the other mystifies me. So and, otherwise, I'm, I'm saying I don't even have an answer for that, Scott. Well, and, and it's not like there are not a lot of girls. And Well, I'm, I say girls. There's not a lot of girls coming up through... Uh, programs and then high schools playing the game. There's so many. There's tons. There's so many girls who are now coming up. You would think, and I, I say, I don't, I, I don't have a problem with UConn. Some people say, well, it's horrible for the sport that you have a team. I don't mind dynasties. I think the dynasties are actually good for sports. But at the same time, all I'm, all I am is puzzled by how nobody else over. They have not. I, I saw this the other day. UConn has not lost back-to-back games. In 24 years. Crazy. So it's not like, oh, they've got a great team right now. They've built it up for the last few years. This has been pretty much the state of women's basketball in the States for a quarter century now. And the hockey, I I hear what you're saying, but come on. Finland, Sweden, Russia... The Czech Republic, they some of these... They don't put the same I know. Care, care and, and love and but why passion that, but, into it like the men win those countries. I know, but my question would be why, because those are hockey-loving countries. I, I, I don't understand. I mean, I know, I understand why Canada and the but, States are ahead. But, but there's also a population thing to look at there, Scott, there, is that, you know what, we have a lot of, you know, right here in this, in this region, from Oakville, Burlington, Hamilton... You go and look up and down the rosters of NCAA schools. Lots They're of them. loaded full of team of, of people from this, this area. You can't say the same for Finland and Sweden. There's just not enough women playing. 
Let's stick with hockey for a second because we talked yesterday on the show for quite a while about this uh, this report that came out that got public yesterday about redoing First Ontario Centre, either sixty eight million dollars or two hundred and fifty two million dollars. Now, I, would I be guessing right to say you're not? Well, t- you tell me. Should we be doing either of those two things? Uh, you know, Scott, it, it hurts my heart right now as we watch the Bulldogs play right now in a postseason game. And it, I'm not going to say that First Ontario Centre is antiquated and it's like, so old, but it just is too big for an Ontario Hockey League team. They've got the right thing going in London. They've got the right thing going in Kitchener. They... This city needs... I mean, if, if and I believe in the owner, the owner here. I believe he's, and I think he's proven himself time and time again with his commitment to this city and providing the city with quality hockey. And the and the and the Bulldogs, the Ontario Hockey League version, they are a quality hockey team. But I think they deserve to be playing in a, in a home that suits them better, and probably suits the sport better to attract more people to come to these games. Right now, where they're playing right now is a cavern. It was a hope. That we, you know, when they built that building 25 years ago, that a National Hockey League team would come, but it's just not going to happen as we know that, as we know that, you know, in reality right now. So to have these guys playing in a building this big just doesn't suit them. And if we could build a building or make this building smaller, I think that's a good move. For you know, the city. you know what I was kind of surprised as I wrapped up the show last night, and I, we got th- I got thinking about this. What I'm surprised was not offered as a third option because there's the 68 million dollar thing, which is to spruce it up basically and to fix it up and make it more modern. There's the 252 million dollar idea that would really turn it back into an NHL palace. What was not included was a third option of reducing the size of this thing to make it more appropriate for most of the concerts and most of the events and most of the hockey games that are played in this place. And I was a little surprised we didn't see that as an option to say, hey, for, I don't know, $30 million or $35 million, we could reduce this now to 7,000 seats, put a convention center in the upstairs or something, I don't know what, and we could make this thing a little more appropriate for 95% of the things we do here. Well, this is what, this is what I'm saying. I mean, there's no reason. I mean, I, I, I'm okay with the building being downtown Hamilton and currently under sort of a roof trying to to revive downtown Hamilton. I think having a an area where where concerts and hockey games would be played is a good thing. It would be and to have it in central Hamilton. I think would in the long run could be a good thing. But right now the building is too big, and to to size it up, I think they have a great model in London. That Labatt Center I think is about ten thousand. 9,000, 10,000, I mean, it's been pretty much sold out for years <laughs> because they have a yeah. quality hockey team. And I think you could, hey, we'll, I, I mean, pardon me, I've even forgotten about the Niagara Ice Dogs. 5,000 people. That building, you know, they had 4,990 in Game 3 between the Peets and the Ice Dogs back on Tuesday night. And if you've been to that building for the curling or for a junior hockey game, that place rocks. There's a great atmosphere. There's a great feel. People like going to the games because even the Ice Dogs, which weren't a great team this year, it's an enjoyable place to watch because the fans are into it and it's, it's loud. And I think Hamilton needs that for these guys. Why I was surprised that they didn't have another option for shrinking it is because I know that what some people will say is, well, if we shrink the building and then we get an NHL team, which I know, like, always put that in brackets and italicize and underline because, you know, 
as long as Gary Bettman is alive and having anything to do with the NHL, we're not. But if we ever get an NHL team, man, what do we do then? Because we've shrunk our arena, it's no longer useful. You are not getting an NHL team anytime soon. And if the day were to ever come, many, many, many years down the road, you will probably have to build a brand new arena anyway. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're going to have to start from scratch anyway. So why are we pretending that we have to... If an NHL team came here someday, and I... Believe me, I am the most skeptical person ever. But if it ever did, that we're not going to have a 50-year-old arena housing that team. So, so let's let's why not? Why are we not considering the idea of let's make this thing usable, let's make this thing useful, let's make this thing appropriate for what we actually have now? And I know some people say, well, we wouldn't have got Garth Brooks then. Okay, I, I mean, I understand that. That's that's true. But 90%, 95% of the things we do in this city would fit into a 10,000-seat or 9,000-seat arena. Is that true that we wouldn't have gotten Garth Brooks? I mean, do we know that for a fact? I mean, I, and I have to do some research there, so I'm kind of maybe speaking out of the side of my mouth here. But I think if you look up and down that concert tour, I'm sure there was probably some stadiums or stadia, or I don't know what the proper word would be, <laughs> that, that, would, that probably were in that 10,000-people know, range. I don't think they were all, you know, 20,000-seat arenas. Yeah, but the poor guy would have actually had to pay taxes here then because he would have been here so long. I mean, it was five concerts <laughs> with the full place. If you just kept selling tickets and it was a 9,000-seat arena, he would have been here for a two-month stint. It would have been like Celine Dion in Vegas. But the people kept showing up. So the people uh, kept they, showing up. So maybe it works. He's got the formula. Just you know, before, I, but yeah, but I, I agree with you, Scott. I think that's the way to go. I mean, maybe tearing it down it, it would be a waste of time. Maybe building a new building would be a waste of time. But you've got some, some the facility here, the infrastructure's here. It just needs to be reduced. And and you're right. And maybe there's you could something you could do with the second level. I don't know. I'm not an architect, but you're not as it sta- No, you just play one on TV. <laughs> I play a lot of things on TV. Just before we get going here, because we only got a couple minutes left, um, I was puzzled by something that came up to today or yesterday, I guess. Um, the NHL has announced that it is going to have a couple exhibition games next year in China. It is looking at the Chinese market. I think it's the Kings, and I can't remember who the other team is that are going there. Um, it's looking at Chief the... Canucks, I think. Yeah, you're right. Uh, the two Pacific teams. It's looking at the Asian market as a place that it can make inroads here and do kind of what the NBA did and become a global brand. And there's, there, We're talking hundreds of millions of potential fans and their money, and so that makes all the sense in the world. So why then, when you have the Olympics in South Korea, which is not all that far away, relatively speaking, and almost in the same time zone, why are you making such a fuss about not going to the Olympics? Why go play exhibition games when you're not going to go play games that actually matter? Because for this situation here, it's all on the NHL's terms. They get everything. They do everything. The people are pandering to the NHL where you have a situation with the IOC and the IIHF. The letter thing. Yes, the letters. That they are not pandering to the National Hockey League right now, and they're playing, and, and they don't want to be bullied, and the owners don't want to be bullied, and they want certain terms and things paid for, and they don't want their season interrupted, and blah 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 blah. Uh, you know what, Scott? In, in, at the end of the day, I, I could be dumb here, I could be wrong. I still believe that they're going to be in South Korea. 
somehow, some way, it just doesn't it, make sense not to. If you're if you're identifying absolutely. that market as a necessary and useful absolutely. market, it makes no sense that when you have all your best players in that time zone to not go there, even if you don't get everything you want. That seems to me to be so short-sighted. I just think that players' association are enough to put the will put out the heat on the owners and the National Hockey League essentially because they're, 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 it, players are starting to speak up now. At one time, it was just Alexander uh, Ovechkin on an island all by himself saying, "I'm going. <laughs> I don't know who who who's going to stop me, but I'm going. I'm going to represent my country." And now you're finding now you're hearing Canadian players, you're hearing American players starting to lean that way, saying. Yeah, I want to represent my country, and they realize the high. How what? This is an event, and I think that's why we remember Sidney Crosby's goal so much because it wasn't the NHL hockey fan that watched the Olympic hockey. It was everybody. It was everybody. It was the part-time hockey fan. It was the grandmothers. It was the uncles, the aunts, people in the sports industry like ourselves that 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 cheered for your country because it's a nationalistic kind of thing. And for the National Hockey League not to identify that, to see that the stars, their best stars that are, are playing in this situation in a, quote, non-World Cup situation and made-up tournament, they're, they're silliness. The history of the Olympics lends to the fact that this is an event that the National Hockey League, if they intend to grow their property outside of the North American boundaries, they have to go. I agree with you. I agree with you. It just it doesn't. It seems like you are trying to launch yourself forward while pumping the brakes as hard as you can. If you don't go to South Korea, but then say, "Ah, but look at that Asian market that's just waiting for us." Well, that that, that doesn't make any sense. And then then they're going to go to the next Olympic. It's like they want to pick and choose. Well, of course they do. Of course they know. But that's again, that's uh, that's what you just said. That's wanting your cake and wanting to be in control of everything. Sometimes you cannot be in control of everything. That's just the reality. You know what? I'm waiting for the next thing. For Gary Bettman to say, oh, yeah, but you know what? We also we want these two teams in the final, and we'd like it to go to an <laughs> overtime. We'd like so-and-so to win and score the winning goal because that would be great for ratings. I mean, I'm not, I'm not actually saying he would, but that's kind of what it seems like. If we want everything to be perfect. You can't always have perfect in sports. Sometimes yeah. it is. Sidney Crosby was perfect. Sometimes it isn't. Baba, we're out of time. I uh, appreciate the time as always, sir. Thank you for doing this. Good time, sir. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. But Saturday evening, there is going to be a documentary shown at Philpot Memorial Church, which is downtown right across from First Ontario Centre. It is called Over 18, and it's essentially... Although I have not seen it, I, from what I understand, it is about the porn industry and its effect on those who would watch and use porn. And it's an interesting topic for a number of reasons, but right at the top of that list, it's very interesting because our society, you can go and go online and type in the word, it's not even a real word, but type in the word pornification. People describe our society as having been pornified, that we have essentially sexualized everything in our society, advertising, TV shows, music, movies, your computer, certainly, uh, the internet, everything. We have turned everything into some form of, not necessarily hardcore, but into some form of porn. Well, one of the people who is behind the showing of this movie, who's helped to organize this, 
is a local pastor by the name of Mike Molesky. He describes himself as a Hamiltonian, a husband, a father, a pastor, and he's a very honest guy. He says, a guy who has had more than his share of experience with pornography himself. Um, Mike, that is very honest. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me on the show. You're welcome. Not, not everybody would allow me to actually introduce them by saying that. Mike? Yeah, hi. Sorry. Not everybody yeah. would, would allow me to introduce them with that kind of introduction to, uh, to actually be honest about their, a bit of their background. Why well, you? I got, I've, uh, I've got nothing to hide, so... Well, let's talk about this for a second, because there, there would be a lot of people, this, this movie clearly uh, is taking issue with the idea of the porn industry, but many people yeah. would say what you do in the privacy of your own home is no, why is, it that, why is that of any concern to anyone else, so why worry about whether or not someone is watching porn? What, why are we bothered by this? Yeah, for sure. That for sure, there are all kinds of opinions about uh, about pornography and whether what its uh, you know its uses or benefits are to us uh, as a culture. Uh, I think whatever person's view uh, is, part of the reality is is it's actually illegal for people under eighteen to access it. And one of the premises of the film is that um, in in the West, in Canada in particular, we have no meaningful. Uh, regulation around who can access pornography uh, online. And so the, the documentary is called Over 18 because um, a person who, from the privacy of their own home, wants to view pornography regardless of their age, the only sort of uh, vetting that's in place is the, as a, is a sort of a question at the, at the front of the page that says, are you over 18? So anybody, whether they're over 18 or 12, uh, which is the age of... 12 is the age at which, uh, you know, the average... Uh, youngster, young, average young guy is seeing pornography for the first time. And so it's very easy, of course, to just click yes and, and say that they are over 18 and then, and, and they have access to unlimited um, online porn. It's a, it's, it's a quite a, quite a situation. I mean, you mentioned, you know, you're talking about hardcore pornography. And one of the interesting things is the shift in what, what pornography actually is these days. And, and what you might have seen when you were a kid, in, or, or what your, some of your friends—I don't know, Scott, what your, what your background is with this stuff—some of the stuff that you would have, you might have seen when you were younger that might have been called pornography. Some of that stuff is on. <laughs> on I was going to say na- National Geographic magazines. <laughs> oh, for sure, you know, and, or like, or 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 on primetime t- television. Yeah, so, uh, you know, it's really changed. Well, you know, that some of that stuff that was called pornography back then is, is very mainstream today. Um, so yeah, I mean, part of the idea with the documentary is it's, it's just trying to call out the reality that this actually is this is having an effect on us as a culture. And what do we what do we want to do about that? And we're trying to it's trying to raise awareness about this situation and give some parents give parents some facts so that they can kind of take some steps to set maybe to, to figure out what kind of boundaries do they want to set with their family around you know internet use or or, or whatever source of media come into the home. Um, so yeah. how do, what do we do, though? Because here's the thing. When we were kids, and Mike, I mean, I don't know exactly how old you are, but when I was a kid, if somebody wanted to go and get something, you had to go to the corner store and then convince the old guy behind the counter who was wearing overalls and an a apron to hand us the magazine that we would then buy. And usually by the time you got to the corner store and had to go through that process, you were so embarrassed oh. that you would just walk away. Yeah. Now... Oh, yeah. Now every kid has an iPhone and a computer at home and probably a tablet or something else, and pornography is available at their fingertips 24 hours a day. So how do you prevent it? 
Absolutely. You don't need you don't need shades and a fedora now to, to access <laughs> pornography. Now it accesses you, right? Like it it is absolutely accessible twenty four seven. Um, if your if your children have if you if your kid has a, a computer in their bedroom, it's there all the time. You know, if your kid has, a, has an iPhone uh, it, or has access to the internet on their from their smartphone, it is constantly there. We don't have to go out and search for it anymore. Um, it is constantly at hand. So what do you do if you're a parent? Because, again, the, the point of this movie, as I understand it, while it's talking about the broader porn industry, a big part of it is with, uh, regarding kids and around the idea of kids getting access to this. So what do you do? Because kids, they do have access to, to phones and to things that are, are new and that, as a parent, it's really difficult to be sitting with them 24 hours a day or at least every minute they're, at, they're online somewhere. What do you do? Yeah, so actually part of the, one of the uh, interesting uh, lines within the, within the film is it actually follows the story of a family where there was a young there's a young guy who became addicted at a very young age like eight or nine years old <clears throat> and so it follows his uh, his journey but yeah there's a lot of things that as parents a lot of this has to do with you know the kind of relationship and atmosphere that you establish with your kids uh, as far as the kinds of conversations that you can have um, it, it you really need to be very um, you really need to be um, unembarrassed about raising the question, raising questions and, and conversations about sexuality with your kids and need to be ready to do that uh, far younger than you probably were ready to as w- when you were growing up. Um, the, the age at which kids are seeing pornography now is way, way younger than we expect. And but in you- fact, more kids, like 70% of teens, are keeping it from their, from their parents. So, so most parents actually have no idea that their kids are seeing this stuff, and they really are. Well, and I, I would argue, I would bet that that number probably hasn't changed all that much. Kids back in 1970 or 60s when they got a Playboy probably didn't go home and tell their parents either that they just saw it. But the, the, what you're seeing is different, and the access to well, it is different. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's one of the interesting, um, again, one of the interesting lines within this story is uh, how pornography has, has changed and what the what it takes now to to satisfy the porn user um, and and uh, it's just it's I mean I, I don't know how much I can get into that on, on the air uh, without being censored but just some of some of the very um, uh, objectifying and manipulative and misogynistic uh, dynamics within pornography uh, are really they're, they're really it's I mean it, in many ways it's just, it's just out of control and it's just very it's an interesting conversation for us to have um, that as a culture, what is this? What effect? What effect is this happening on us? And and, and what uh, and what do we want to do for our family? Do you believe I mean, it's having an effect, a broader effect? Because it, you, even if you, Mike, even if you tried, even if you made a concerted effort to never look at any kind of porn, you could not go through any per- any day in Western culture without being exposed to sexual images, whether it's advertisements, billboards, magazines, whatever, it would be impossible to not be affected by this. You're absolutely right, Scott. It's, it's everywhere. And, and, uh, you know, we can't, you can't escape it. And so what we can do is think through like, what, what, what sorts of, uh, what sort of ethics do we want to carry as we engage in, you know, in friendship relationships with people within our community, within our families and friendships and in our church communities and, and, and on and on and on. Um, you know what are the, what are the the boundaries and, and rules we want to set for ourselves so that we can look at each other respectfully and with um, not treating each other as objects. You know. Again, let's go back for a second because again, most of the discussion with this, at least the broader discussion on this, revolves around kids. It's called under eighteen. It's about yeah. people who are yeah. not supposed to be having access to this yet. Right. You said a moment ago you have to not be embarrassed. 
you clearly have reached that point, again, with the introduction. You're very forthright about this, yeah. but I think that makes you very, very unusual. i got to be honest. I don't think there's too many dads who are going to their kids saying, you know what, son, um, once upon a time I used to, or even now, I look at a lot of porn. I just don't see that discussion happening anywhere. And, yeah, and, you know, there's probably not a lot of pastors doing that either. But to, to be honest, I, I, uh, the stakes are really high in this uh, conversation. And I've, I've seen the damage that it's done in, in my life. It's had a, it's had a cost. Uh, you know, in terms of uh, in terms of my my grades and different jobs that I had, and um, even in the early years of my marriage, and uh, I just I don't want to I would I would love to see other people spared of that, um, and so that's that's part of where this is coming from in my life. Do you think it's changeable though? I mean, if people go and watch this movie now, it may give them. I suppose if you've got kids and you're worried about your kids and the access they have to this, this may give you some strategies. But do you actually believe that we can change things? With well, our with our kids in particular, yeah, that's a great question. One of the big one of the big outcomes of this documentary, uh, it, you know, and and there are just to be clear, like there are hundreds of of uh, showings of this film going on uh, around the country, and it's it's just going on and on and on. It's really spreading. It's gone. It's been showed in Parliament, uh, and one of the goals is actually to change the law around screening websites so that so that when a kid um, gets on the uh, gets on the internet, and if they want to access porn, they actually have to prove that they're eighteen. How there would is, you do? How would you possibly do that, though? Well, they do it with gambling, like online gambling sites. You have to sh- you have to you have to be able to prove that you are legal age to gamble, whether that's through a, a credit card or or um, whatever other else. But uh, but there are ways to do that, and there's nothing in place legally uh, regarding um, pornography. So so it, this isn't this isn't a hard uh, law to change. It's just a matter of demonstrating that it's a you know that it's a valid cause and so that is that there is a there is a bill in place that um, the screening will come with a there will be a petition present we're going to try and get as many people to sign that as possible there are thousands of people have signed it already um, so yeah the word is spreading and and yet you know i don't we i don't have any illusion that that we're going to change the culture necessarily uh who knows that that's certainly not in my hands but uh you know what we can do is we can protect families um, and there, there will be people. We, I mean, we certainly don't want to shame anybody who thinks that porn is good for the culture, and, and we would love for them to come and watch it as well. Because in the documentary, there, there are interviews not just with this family, but with you know, there are adult film stars. Um, there are people who've left the adult porn industry. There are people who there's interviews with a, a, a neuroscientist and social scientists, and lots of people who are way smarter about this stuff than me. And the goal here, just you know, I just think that by putting the information out there in front of a lot of people, uh, we can make up our own minds about whether whether this is good for us uh, or not. Here, here's where I, here's the stumbling block for me of why I have some doubts that this thing will ever change, and not that it shouldn't. But I looked up today before I came on with you, and porn right now, according to the last year's numbers, is a ninety-seven billion dollar industry. And I, every time I see huge numbers like that, I get to that and I think, oh, dude, you're right. There are going to be people who are going to argue like crazy that this should never change because it's big, big, big money. It's big, right. big business, and that's very motivating for people making that money to make sure that things don't change. You're right, and you know what? The thing, the thing with that, you're absolutely right. And and uh, on that, I just, I mean, I've got two daughters of my own. Um, you know, you've you've got a daughter. We've we we know. We know, we know, and we love the women in our lives, and, and the guys who are uh, growing up and, and starring in some of these films. And, it, and we, the documentary definitely explores what uh, 
what sorts of uh, dev- devastation a lot of these people um, have been through that has led them into the porn lifestyle and what follows them after. Um, but even 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 those who aren't in the industry, people who just are sort of dabbling with it, it just, and just it, it's a real good glimpse into um, what effect this is having on us as a culture. And so, yeah, we really want to get the word out. And, and uh, it, is it too late? I don't know. Again, I don't, I, I don't know. But I do think uh, it is the responsibility of parents to make some decisions about what what influence pornography is going to have in their home, if any, and um, and to really equip them with some resources and some tools to to uh, to fight back. Where and when and how much to go see it? All right. No cost. Uh, it is at Philpott Memorial Church in the room that we call the atrium. Uh, we can seat about 150. If we need to, we can move into the auditorium, which is which will seat about five 600 people. Um, it's this Saturday, and the doors open at 6.30 p.m., and we'll start the, we'll start the film at about 7. Uh, yeah, no cost. We would just love for lots of people uh, to, to come, and whether they are churchy people or not churchy people, whatever, uh, we all have a stake in this conversation. So, uh, there's, you know, we, we just want to come and, and watch the movie, and there's going to be time for Q&A uh, afterwards. And, um, yeah, it's going to be a really great time. So we're, we're, hoping to, uh, we're hoping to get lots of people there. Mike Molesky, appreciate the time tonight. Thanks. Thanks, Scott, for having me. You know, the, the, the thing about this is, and, and when I said at the top we're going to talk about porn, of course, you know, that's always a great thing uh, to get people to listen. Um, but whether you are someone, as Mike said, who thinks that somehow that porn is somehow beneficial to society. And if you can make that argument, okay. Um, I don't think there are too many people out there. I don't think there are too many people out there, even if you are a supporter of it, who look at it and say, yeah, this is great for 12-year-olds or 13-year-olds. I Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's a a group of people out there who are really big believers that it's really great for 14-year-old boys to be exposing themselves to hardcore porn. I, I don't know of those people. I think that almost everybody, even those who would watch porn regularly, would say, yeah, you know, not till you're 18, not till you're an adult. This is This is not good for kids. Well, that's what this is really about. That's what this movie is about, is how do we keep kids from exposing themselves to this when it's... I mean, it, if you're out there and you are listening and you say porn is great for 12-year-old boys and you're not being ironic or funny, like if we're, honestly, if it was your son or your nephew or whoever else, if you then I think you're one of the unique people because I think that 99.9% of people would say, no, 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 whatever you may think about it, certainly not for kids. That's what this is about. So it is Saturday. It is doors open at 630. Again, the church, the place is Philpott Memorial Church. It's right downtown across on York Boulevard across from First Ontario Centre if you are interested in going to see that. It's called Over 18 or is it Under 18? Something about 18. I can't remember the name. <laughs> I can't remember the proper name now, but it's 18 is in the title. It's around the 18 age group. That's what it's about. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900, AM 900 CHML.